Well, hey everyone, Athena Dean Holtz here, and welcome to the All Things Podcast, where we gather once a week to learn and share stories about how God works all things together, writing a story of good, because He is faithful and good. Think about it, 2020 has turned many of our lives upside down, so who couldn't use a major dose of hope? I'd like to ask you to share this podcast with friends or on your social media outlets and perhaps review it on Apple so others will find this podcast easily. Every Wednesday, I'll be chatting with a friend who I know and respect, one of our Redemption Press authors, who'll not only share a personal Romans 8.28 story, but also help to give you tips and tools for your life journey. Two episodes a month, we'll have an additional interview with a well-known author, and sprinkled in along the way will be additional Romans 828 stories from our She Writes for Him bootcamp graduates and others the Lord brings my way. So let's get started. Welcome to today's episode of the All Things Podcast. This week's podcast is airing on November 25th during National Adoption Day Week. So you're going to hear some amazing stories today. During the first half of the podcast, you'll meet Redemption Press author Wendy Batchelder and hear more about her search for identity as one who was adopted as a child. During the second half, I'll be introducing you to Becky Graham, another Redemption Press author who has an incredible adoption story as one who became an adoptive mom. So before we roll my conversation with Wendy, let me give her a proper introduction. Wendy Batchelder is the author of the hot off the press, Finding Family, How Deeply Rooted Faith Grew Our Family Tree. Wendy has been adopted twice, first by earthly parents and then into the family of God. Because of her journey to finding her God family and biological family, she is passionate about helping new believers grow in their faith. She and her husband, David, live in Iowa with their three children and three fur babies, and they attend Lutheran Church of Hope in West Des Moines, Iowa, where Wendy has served with various ministries. Wendy enjoys learning new things, spending time with friends and family, and hasn't met a closet she can't organize. Wendy is also a member of Compel Training, a Christian writer's organization, and Finding Family is her very first book. So let's get started. So Wendy, I have been looking forward to this time with you for a while, and I am so excited to have you on the episode today of all things. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Athena. It's great to be here. You bet. So before I, you know, I want to jump in and have a discussion about your book. But before we go there, I would love for you to share a Romans 828 story with our listeners so that they just get a little bit better insight into who you are and how God has worked in your life. Yeah, no, thank you. I'd be happy to do that. So, you know, my Romans 828 experience and really what I'm called to do is to help connect other people to their callings in life. 
to help connect people to their purpose and to help them achieve their goals. And now that is true both in my professional life and in my personal life. I can I can see God working through me in that way. And so as I was going through this journey that is the premise of my book and finding my birth parents, I always felt like there was greater purpose to it, that it wasn't just about me and it wasn't just about us getting connected to one another, but that there was there was more to it. And it became very clear to me as I was sharing my experience with others, with friends, with family members throughout my journey, that there was there was a bigger thing in play here, that God had set something in motion. And every person I shared the story with responded with the same words. They said, you should write a book. Uh-huh. And so I I know that there's still things in motion with this. And I'm just really excited to see what God does with this story, because I, I do believe that he will use it to connect other people. And that just feels like the greatest fulfillment of my calling and what he's he's done for me and with me in my life so far. And so I'm just really excited to see where this journey takes us. Mm, I love that. And just to be able to take an experience that was a struggle. Yeah. And God gave you his comfort. And now you're able to turn around and comfort others with the comfort you've been given. And I, I mean, that's Romans 8, 28, right in a nutshell to be able to do that. It sure is. Yep. It sure is. Hmm. All right. So your journey almost seems to have caught you off guard. If you could sum up your search for your family in one sentence, what would it be? Oh, gosh. I mean, I would describe it as just being delightfully surprising. It, it really was something that caught me off guard. I mean, I I had searched for my birth parents for a while and sort of had given up hope that I would find them. And so when I went through this process that you know I write about in the book, it all came together very fast when when it did come together. I, I took a, a DNA test and then within like four weeks, I was meeting my birth mom. And that just felt so shocking because it had been this seven-year search and wait, search and wait process to then have it happen so quickly. It's just, it was so clear to me that God carved that path. It was very clear. And so it just, it was, it was very surprising. No doubt God can move mountains, but he, he really, he really did for us in that moment. Wow. So the book is much more about, it's not just your search for your biological family. It's also your search for belonging. Mm -hmm. So what did it mean to you when you discovered that you, Wendy Batchelder, belong to the family of God? Oh gosh. I mean, not to sound too cliche, but it really did change everything. I I worked so hard in my life to achieve different things, whether that was to meet goal aspirations in my career or to, you know, strive to be to be perfect in different ways, you know, with family, with kids, you know, all of the things that, you know, society puts in front of us and, and pushes us to strive for. And I really felt like once I learned who my identity was really secure in, I could let go of some of those perfection objectives and understand that the the work was done. I was already accepted and I didn't have to continue to strive. So it was, it was almost like I could breathe for the very first time. Mm, I love that. Mm 
So the first moment that you actually met your mom, can you describe your emotions? I mean, what was it like to hug her that first time? Oh gosh, I mean, it's it's hard to put it into words because it it did it did happen so quickly. I mean, I, my first conversation with her just over, you know, a simple text message resulted in us meeting just a few minutes later, really. I mean, 20, 30 minutes later. And so I didn't have time to really think it through or emotionally prepare for that. So, you know, seeing her for the first time and really being able to to touch her, to hug her, to put my arms around her, it was very surreal. Uh, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. You know, it was just something that I didn't really think was possible. I had kind of given up hope on that. And so to see her and touch her, I mean, we didn't speak for several minutes because, you know, we were just overcome with the, you know, the gravity of the moment. She, you know, she had waited for 33 years for that. That's a, that's a long time. And so I think it was just. Uh, it was just very overwhelming for both of us. We ended up sitting together for almost three hours that first night, just talking and getting to know each other and several times had to pause and kind of collect ourselves because the emotion of the evening had kind of caught up with us. Uh, I, I just can't even imagine what that would be like. Okay, so you found out you'd been lied to about the circumstances surrounding your adoption. You'd been told one thing about your birth mom, but the opposite was true. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that and why adoption agencies and or kind of personnel say these things? What, what did it mean to you when you discovered your birth mom hadn't really wanted to give you up? Gosh, there's a lot to unpack there, Athena. Yeah, I'm <laughs> um, game changer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really was. Um, it was, you know, it was very interesting to understand and uncover some of these facts around my adoption. I do think it's interesting when you look at how adoption has evolved over the, you know, the last 50 years, it used to be this very kind of shame filled experience. Families would hide that they had adopted a child. You know, even my own father, he was adopted in the 1940s and they used to match people based on appearance. And so, you know, it was this thing that you just didn't talk about because, you know, they didn't want people to, to know that they could not have their own children. So I do think that that has evolved and it had evolved a lot by the early 1980s when, you know, when I was born and adopted. So there, there is a lot to be said for what their, the agencies or the, the individuals associated with the adoption process are attempting to do. And that's connect a baby with a family. It's not to protect the birth parents or to provide anything necessarily for them. They're searching for a child. And so in many cases, the facts that were shared with both sides were not 100% accurate. They were selling a process, right? They were trying to close this deal. And there were a lot of little facts that were immaterial that weren't exactly accurate, but there were others that were clearly you know, exaggerated or in some way, uh, you know, evolved to provide what I would call like sweeten the deal a little bit. You know, my father's career, for example, it was portrayed as something a little bit bigger than it actually was. 
So, you know, just little things like that, that were, uh, you know, elaborated on. Yeah. And so I think for the the big fact, which was, you know, that Karen had wanted to keep me, but her, her mother actually pushed her to, to put me up for adoption. That of course would have made adoptive parents feel more comfortable with the adoption because they know that the birth mother is relinquishing rights on her own accord. Well, if that's not the case, how would you feel as an adoptive mom, knowing that you were adopting a child that the birth mom did not want to be separated from? Mm. That's a very different emotional situation. So I do think that had a lot to do with it, but learning that, that difference and that distinction, it was just really powerful to know that she had wanted to to keep me and had done everything that she could to do so, but just couldn't make it work. I'd always had a ton of respect for her and her courageous decision, even though that, you know, it didn't quite end up being the exact way that it was portrayed to me. I still have that same respect and just appreciation for what she went through and making that decision, whether she wanted to or not, you know, she, she still had to, she still had to do what she did. So you know, that gave us both a, 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 you know, a great shot at life. And, you know, we're, we were able to go through this beautiful reunion as a result. Mm. So meeting your dad face to face was a slower process with lots of conversation beforehand. Mm-hmm. And that day arrived, how was it like when you met your birth mom? How was it different? Yeah, that's it was a good distinction for sure. Cause it, it was different. You know, we had had more time to communicate up front weeks actually versus when I met uh, my birth mom, it was just, you know, minutes. <laughs> and so it was less immediate crying, less, you know, overwhelming emotions, but more anxiety and anticipation of that moment. I mean, in, in both cases, you're meeting someone that is while related to you, still a stranger. And so there is still a great deal of getting to know each other and meeting someone, but you do have that, that bond. I mean, they are your, they're, they are your blood relative. And so there, there is some commonality there, but just the emotions around it were a little bit different because they weren't as, you know, urgent in that with Karen, I, I just met her moments after even connecting with her. Yeah. So it was, it was different, but very, very special, both of them in different ways. Wow. So it seems amazing that you'd actually been attending church with your birth dad for years and you didn't even know it. How is that possible? I mean, God must have orchestrated it for you guys to wind up there. That just blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, we do go to the largest Lutheran church in America, <laughs> Lutheran Church of Hope, which is just a really big church. But, uh, you know, there are plenty of other churches in the Des Moines metro that either one of us could have easily been members of, you know, during that process. So it was just mind boggling to know that he was going there all this time. But even further, he was in church in the service that we normally attend when I sent him the very first reach, the very first message. So, you know, there's just a lot of really neat nuggets like that, that I, you know, I outline in our story, but he, he was there. He was in church in our section the day that I reached out to him. Wow. I just love how God, the details, um, (laughs) he 
he's in the details, not just the big stuff, but the little stuff. And that is just talk about kind of a full circle kind of feel to think that, wow, he was right there. Wow. So the various families all interact with yours now, even though your birth mom and dad have their own separate families. How do you work out any tensions or conflict? Yeah, I love your question, Athena. So we don't really have tension or conflict at this point. When I say at this point, because there was, I would say, you know, candidly, there were a couple of early meetings where everyone was together that, you know, there was a little bit of awkwardness. And I think that's only natural. I mean, if you think about seeing someone that you dated 33 years later, that might be a little bit strange, right? Especially one that you had a child with and had had, you know, no contact with after that. So there were, you know, just some initial, hi, how are you? Like, you know, what, what's, what's happened in your life since then? And just kind of getting to know each other. But, you know, we have both families, my birth mom, my birth father, my mom and my husband's family are all here in Des Moines. So we see, I should say in normal times, we see them all very often. And when we have like kids' birthday parties or holidays, we're often in one big family together. So it's, it becomes uh, a large group really fast at this point. Well, and that's some redemption going on there. (laughs) Wow. So talk about how the relationships have deepened and grown with your parents and your half siblings. What challenges have you faced and did you overcome them? Yes. So there have been, I mean, there's a lot of relationships that have come out of this story and this experience. I have living grandparents and half siblings, as you mentioned. I have a half brother on my mom's side and two half siblings on my dad's side. And, you know, just step I've step siblings as well and aunts, uncles, cousins. I mean, it is a large group of folks to get to know. So I would say that those relationships have really grown organically over time in their own way. There are definitely things that I missed. I feel like I missed out on, especially with my younger siblings who are 17 and 19 respectively. I would have been about their age when they were born. And so, you know, I feel like I, I missed out on a lot of things for them, but we have grown close, far closer than I would have ever expected given our age difference. And that has been just really, really special, uh, really, really special. As far as challenges are concerned, I think it's just a matter of like figuring out logistics <laughs> when it comes to holidays and things and just where, who are we going to go and in what order and <laughs> making sure that we have time for everyone. But it's been, it's been really tremendous to get to know all of them and just have lo- so much additional love in our life. Yeah, it's been tremendous for my children as well. I have three kids who are nine, six, and one. And that baby, when I was pregnant with her, my youngest, Charlotte Grace, she was, you know, it was really special for her because she was the first infant that all of my birth parents and birth family had been around in that generation, you know? And so that was very special to get to experience that that pregnancy and the birth and everything with them for the first time. Wow. So, okay. As we kind of begin to wrap up, what would you, if you've got maybe a couple of tips or tools 
that would help those who are listening, you know, whether they're adopted themselves or they're, you know, adoptive parents or, you know, birth parents. I mean, there's so many dynamics, Um, but you know, God is always working all things together for good for those who Mm -hmm. love him and are called according to his purposes, but we can't always see it or remember it when we need to. So do you have some tips or tools that would help some of the folks that are listening just really remember that God really is good and he is working good? Yes, absolutely. So I would say first and foremost, you are absolutely right. The three people or three groups of people that make up that adoption triad, the birth parents, the adoptee and the adoptive parents, those are highly charged and different emotions. And so I think for for those of you that are a part of the adoption triad, your feelings are valid. I first want them to know that because there are times in my life that I felt like I must be the only person that feels this way. And that's just not the case. So just know that you're not alone in any of those steps of your journey or your process and that there are lots of other people that feel the way that you do. For those that are not adopted or not a part of the adoption triad, be very kind and gentle with your adoptive friends or your adoptive parents or birth parents that you know, because it is a lot of emotion to unpack. I would say if you're thinking or going through this process or thinking about it, I would really encourage you to pray and walk closely with the Lord as you go through it and let him lead. That was the big transition point for me as I tried to push it on my own and that didn't work. But when I relinquished control, then he showed me the path. That was the the tipping point, right? Where everything changed. And then lastly, my advice would be just remember where your where your identity comes from. It's not because you're an adoptee or a birth parent or an adoptive parent. That's not who you are in the Lord's eyes. That's just part of you. And just remember who who God says you are. That's what's most important. Mm, so good. So good. And I, I would think, and I don't know if you struggled with this, but it seems most of the people like in my life that I know that are adopted, they struggle with rejection. So we have to be sensitive to that and understand. Yeah, yeah it's so true. It's very easy to feel rejected. I know uh, several adoptees who struggle with that, who struggle with feeling rejected and are, you know, I think just more sensitive to those emotions. And so again, just remembering that when people reject you, that does not mean that God rejects you. And it's easy to get those things confused, especially when your, you know, your identity is not very like really rooted in him. But if you continue to push your roots deep into him and you draw near to him, then he will draw near to you. And you will, you will definitely understand that when someone rejects you, that's not, that's not a reflection on you. That's a reflection on them. And so the best thing you can do is pray for them. Amen. Good, good word. All right. Well, now if we have some people listening today that would love to connect with you online or on social media, what's the best place for them to find you? Oh, I spend more time on Instagram than anything else. Okay. So you can find me on Instagram at Wendy S as in Sue Batchelder. That's my Instagram handle. I would love to connect with you there. Wonderful. And do you do much speaking on the topic or is that kind of starting to 
I haven't yet. <laughs> Girlfriend. <laughs> Not wow. yet. No, but I would be very open to that. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for taking time with us today. It was just a delight to have you on and just to hear a little more about your story and how God worked such redemption in that story. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Athena. It was great to be here with you. All right, we are back for the second half of the show today, and I am excited to introduce you to Redemption Press author, Becky Graham. But first, let me give her an introduction. Author and blogger Becky Graham grew up surrounded by cornfields and combines just outside a small town in rural Northwest Ohio. After attending a Christian school from 6th grade until 12th grade, she chose to attend Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio, where she received her associate degree. When she was just 20 years old, she packed up and moved to the Chicago, Illinois area to work for a publisher. While living in Illinois, she worked at various positions within Motorola, receiving her bachelor's degree from DePaul University, and then she married her husband and added a son to her family. After 29 years in Illinois, Becky and her family relocated from the Midwest to South Florida, where she can now go barefoot in the winter instead of wearing boots. Boy, I wish I was her right now. It's cold here. <laughs> During her first year living in Florida, Becky started writing and published her first book, Faithful, with Redemption Press in 2017. Becky has volunteered in several churches as a children's ministries teacher, women's small group leader, women's leader coach, and leader in women's ministries. She has participated in the Bible Study Fellowship, mentored in the Listen to My Life program at Willow Creek Community Church, and attended Carol Kent's Speak Up Conference, Write to Publish Writers Conference, which is where I met her, and Breathe Writers Conference. Becky writes in a warm and engaging yet humorous style about what God is currently teaching her. She writes about how God is changing her on her blog at BeckyGrahamAuthor.com. After sharing her faith story on her blog, she authored Faithful, An Unexpected Journey to Motherhood, released in May 2017 by Redemption Press. Readers comment, it's like sitting down and talking with Becky over a cup of coffee. Faithful is receiving high praise for the first-time author, and readers are already asking for a sequel to the book. The book has received a Presidential Gold Book Award by the Florida Authors and Publishers Association and a 10 out of 10 score for writing from Book Life Prize Critics Review. So here we go. Well, Becky Graham, I have been looking forward to our time together. Thank you so much for being on the All Things Podcast today and for spending some time with us. Well, thanks for having me. You betcha. So we're going to do this a little bit different. I normally, you know, ask uh, to share a Romans 8, 28 story 
to start with, but we're going to jump into some questions. And at the end, you're going to uh, share that with us. So I'm excited for our listeners to hear how God has worked all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And it's just going to be fun to have this conversation today. I know enough of your story to already know what we're all in store for today. So we are ready to get this ball rolling and buckle up, buttercup. Those of you that are listening, this is an incredible story. So Becky, you have an affinity for Sesame Street. And tell our listeners why Sesame Street is so important in your life. Well, in 1969, the first broadcast of Sesame Street aired on television. I was four years old. So I'm the youngest of five girls. So for the first time in how many years, my mom had one child at home. There was no other older sibling to entertain the younger sibling. So after my sister went on the bus to kindergarten, my mom would turn on, I believe it was Mr. Rogers and then this new show called Sesame Street. So I fell in love with Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch and Kermit the Frog. And, you know, for the first time, I was this kid out in the middle of the rural area with three houses on my mile. And for the first time, I thought, what is an apartment? What is a city? And what is a grocery store like this? Um, So it was quite the experience because it opened my world up just a little bit further. Wow. So you have one particular song from Sesame Street that holds great meaning, and it's called One of These Things. So I am going to read it to the lyrics to that, and then we're going to just jump in and um, take it away from there. So the way that the song went, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? Did you guess which thing was not like the others? Did you guess which thing just doesn't belong? If you guessed this one is not like the others, then you're absolutely right. So for listeners that are not familiar with that song, one of these things was featured regularly on the television show for sketches where young viewers would be shown a group of four items and one of them was different than the other three. So they would have to kind of identify the item which did not belong. For those of you who were not Sesame Street viewers, So, Becky, what does that song, why does it resonate so much with you? Well, it seems to be the theme song of my life. Uh, Uh, Which one does does not belong? Which one would probably describe my, how I felt for my entire life? I've listened to the lie, you're the one that doesn't belong. You don't fit in. You're weird. So one of the things is, first of all, I know I belong to God. And since I was four years old, God has been tugging at my heart. And I knew I wanted him in my heart when I saw a picture of a gentle Jesus knocking on the door. And I knew that with him in my heart, God could be my confidence when there was no one available 
He's my rock when I'm insecure, my source of strength when I'm weak, and whenever I need wisdom, knowledge, you name it, understanding, discernment, whatever thing I'm I'm coming up against, I can know I can always go to God. But I've always wondered why he tailored my life to be a little unconventional when all I wanted to do was belong to a group. But it wasn't until I was sitting into a mentoring class and I learned about life mapping that I discovered a different truth about myself. So tell us exactly what a life map is. So a life map is a timeline of your life. So you start at the the age of zero and you go through the present and you mark significant life events in your life, your family's life and or the world. So it starts at your birth. So talk about the atmosphere, the circumstances, the when, where, how, where, what you were when you were born, because that shapes about who you are when you came into the world, because those first five years do shape a lot of where you are. And then what you do is you can map, you can break this down to about five years. You can do it year by year or every five years or every 10 years. But the important part of this step is to document everything that happened, significantly happened in bullet points in your life. So is that then significant, positive or negative? Either way. Yes. yes. And okay. yeah, because anything positive is good and anything bad. It's what impacted you, what happened in the life. And then the next step is to take those bullet points and then determine which ones had the most significant impact on your life? Taking those bullet points, you want to go into detail about the why and how it impacted your life. And this is a very honest look at your life journey. And it may not be the the most fun to do. It's not. It's not. And then after you do that, the next step is to connect your past experience with who and where you are in the present, Mm. which can be done with on your own or maybe with a mentor or counselor to help process the event. Cool. You know, when you look at that, this life mapping was part of my journey, unexpected journey to motherhood. And when we were doing all the edits and writing through this section of the, of my journey, the unexpected journey did not make it into the book. Uh, It was briefly touched on, but it didn't make it in. But this was one of the unexpected things that I encountered because the more life mapping I did, the more I got to know myself and where I was and that God put me right where I needed to be and have those significant things. So what did you find out then about your life map did, did you have any aha moments as you began delving into that? I did. And one of the different things about it was I was 34 at the time and I had gone through, I was married seven years. Five of those years were spent infertility, all the infertility meds and procedures. And I had just gone through uh, pregnancy loss and chemical depend, uh, chemical imbalance and a clinical depression. So I was kind of already in that self-awareness, self-discovery mode. 
And when I did this, I was also questioning everything about my past decisions and the cause of my infertility at the time. So I got deep into these if only questions mm. and soon it overtook my thought life. And I was just like, if only I had never decided to go away to college, I probably would have been in that small rural area, married someone by now, had my babies in my 20s, and surely I messed up God's plan for my life. That was what it was. And I made these decisions and that messed up my God's plan. Um, if only I had not gone to the two-year, did the two-year program. If only I had done the four-year program, I would have probably stayed in Ohio, met somebody, married, and I'd be a mother by now. And I messed that up because I, I surely that was God's plan and I messed that up. That's the reason I'm not pregnant. Or if only I'd never moved to Illinois. Or if only I didn't take the job at Motorola. Or if only I hadn't wasted my time on this dead-end relationship, that one that I didn't listen to my gut and end, but I was there for three and a half years, made, you know, surely if I wouldn't have made that decision, I would have been a married, pregnant, and have two kids by now. Surely I messed up God's plan for me, and that's the reason why I'm infertile and I'm not getting pregnant. And one day I was in the midst of these if onlys and I went to my husband and I said, okay, I need to process. And my husband and I process things together all the time. So I laid it all out and I gave him all my if onlys and my husband in his ever calm and wise voice looked at me and he said, Becky, what I hear you saying is that everything that led you to me and me to you and our life together has been a mistake. Ouch. Whoa. Yes. He says, it sounds like you think our marriage is a result of your poor decisions, and mm. I'm the consolation prize. Oh, man. He said, I consider you the main prize of my life. I won the jackpot when I met and married you but I don't think you feel the same way about me and our marriage. Mm. I know that was like hit myself, you know, the two by four up against my head, you know, yeah. it was just like, wow, I did not expect that. And so I immediately saw how selfish and inconsiderate I was and how I got totally wrapped up in these lies yeah. That I was processing through where I was in life. So here, I just looked at him sitting here in front of me as the man who pledged to be with me to death in the middle of my clinical depression. He chose me because at one point I gave him an out. I said, look, I can't have babies. Medically, it's not possible. So you are free to go. And he's like, no, I don't want to go. I chose you, not mm -hmm. fatherhood. And so this is the man that I'm standing there saying all of this. And I just started crying. And I said, I am so sorry. I immediately apologized to him. We reconciled right then. And I said, those were all lies that I was just wrapped up in believing. And I think he saw the lies that I had gotten wrapped up in. And so for the first time in my life, though, I heard that I was somebody's some of these prides. Mm. 
I belonged with him and he belonged with me. And I didn't need to belong to a certain group because we both belonged in this marriage. And that was enough. We belonged someplace. For the first time, I felt I belonged somewhere. Hmm. And we both belonged because of the choices and God's orchestrating. We belonged where God wanted us in this marriage. And that's so powerful because that just sounds like a game changer, like the perspective that you had that was just bogged down in all these lies from the enemy just went boom. And you saw clearly, wow. Yeah, I, it was. I it am. Was a, but go ahead. Well, just coming to that realization that you were valuable and that he valued you and loved you and which was the exact opposite of the if only lies. That is so true. It was like he he burst the bubble of lies and helped me see the truth. Mm. And that epiphany changed the course of our marriage because we became bonded. We belonged to each other. We became this team. And then, you know, that was a whole game changer going forward. And even to this day, that was a huge shift in our marriage because we belong together. Yeah. Wow. And just, I mean, that was the most God honoring thing he could do. Just what that did. He exposed the lie. He exchanged it for the truth. And it changed your life and it changed your marriage. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. You talk about your next journey in the book. Tell us us about that. Well, the ending of adoption of infertility. I mean, I made a conscious effort to end that. And I remember having this moment. My husband was out of town for business and I had this box of baby clothes or little clothes, toddler clothes that I bought. And I woke up in the middle of the night one night and I just went in there, opened the box, held each one of the outfits and just poured out my heart to God, grieved, cried, screamed, heaved, everything. And I knew I couldn't do it with him or with another girlfriend. I mean, I did it with my best friend, God. Yeah. Because yep. God was the one who knew what to say and knew what not to say. He was just there and I could feel his presence in that. So I let go of that dream. And I had this dream with my husband since we were bonded. And we went on to the adoption journey. And so that is a whole nother. I talk about it in depth. In, in in detail in the book, all of the application, all the the stuff. If you're not a team as you go into this, uh, it will ruin your marriage. It will put your marriage to death. Wow. So what did it feel like when, and this was at the end of, of the faithful book, when you and your husband welcomed your son, what, what did that feel like? It was surreal. It was surreal because, and it's interesting because now when I read about other people's stories or I see the movie Juno up on the screen and I'm like, I went through that. Mm. I, I went through an open adoption. I know what it's like to sit 
next to her, I mean, stand next to the birth mom as she's giving birth to my son. And then having the little thing going as you're leaving, you know, this thing that you've prayed for in this moment for the last seven, eight, nine, ten years, all of a sudden, we're parents. And we take this little thing home with us. The, The nurses were so wonderful. But after we had this very wonderful moment with our adoption specialist and the birth mom and my husband and I and this this child that's being handed to us and we prayed and wonderful, she left and we were, you know, wiping the tears away. And the nurse says, I'll be back to tell you what to do because you're taking this little guy home and you're the parents now. And we're like, what? <laughs> wow. So when you were out promoting your book, you focused on God writing your story instead of you. So what what would you tell someone listening today who might be struggling with the story God is writing for their life? It is a hard thing to let God write your story. Yeah. It is really hard. In one moment, when I thought the story, I mean, I grieved and I went. And I thought, this is how my story's going to go. I've done this. God put a surprise and I had an ectopic pregnancy. And I'm like, are you kidding me, God? <laughs> I didn't think I could ever get pregnant. I was on this. And then you give me a pregnancy and it's within two hours of finding out I was pregnant, it's gone. I'm like, I don't like that chapter. You know, and why would you write it? But mm. now that I look at it, I mean, I hated it. I hated it, I hated it, I hated it. But that was probably back in, I forget the date, probably back in 1999 or 98. Here I am, 2017, I'm in Coral Springs, Florida. And a gal from my small group went to the doctor, she was pregnant, and there was no heartbeat. And she would have to deliver the baby. And so we, I had signed up to take him a meal and we, my Dave and I were there. We took him the meal. When we walked in, we found out that she had given birth that afternoon in the doctor's office. We didn't know that walking in, we just signed up for this time. And when we went there, she said, God knew to bring you and Dave because you guys have been through this before. And you're exactly what we need right now tonight. Mm. And on the way home, I'm like, are you kidding me, God? And God's whisper said, I never waste your pain. And because there was that chapter of the topic pregnancy that I did not like, and I hated it, God used it, but it wasn't until close to 20 years later Mm. that God used that experience so that I could minister to this woman. If that isn't a Romans 828 story, I don't know what is that. (laughs) That just life from that pain and just ministering that life to her in her pain. Powerful. Powerful. And then when people talk about going through IVF and failed IVF, I know that pain. Yep. And I know it different than other people know it. And we have a certain like 
yes, I know what it is to put a needle in my stomach or put a needle in my, my thigh. I know what that's like, and that's not fun. And I know what it's like when it dissolves. And I don't like that. I didn't like that part of my story. And it would have, and it was a bad thing. But then when I'm talking to people nowadays, it's a good thing because they have the comfort and they have somebody who knows that an empathy that nobody else would have had. Right. The thing that's so cool about that is, you know, when we win an award or we have this great success, that doesn't resonate near as much with people as our brokenness does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I never thought God would use my brokenness. When I went to write the book, I hadn't, I, I did not go to, I was not an English major. I was not an author, but God said to write your story. And I'd been writing this story in my head and I just started to get it out. But little did I know another Romans 828 story is, like I said, we're in South Florida. It is a very international community down here. I've, there's so many different cultures and everything. And one day I went, Dave and I were late. We were like, oh, do we even want to go to small group? We're late. But we finally went and we walked in late. So we didn't get to meet everybody. And there were some people that I didn't know. So we're in our group and I started talking. And somehow this lady, and she was from Brazil, because we had lot, we have lots of international people. So people from Brazil, Haiti, Trinidad, all over in our small group. And all of a sudden she realized I'm Becky. And she said, you're Becky from the book I've been reading? And I said, I said, yeah. And she goes, and this is, this is your husband, Dave? And I said, yeah, this is Dave. She goes, you're the people in the book? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and she, so she's looking at me. She goes, I want what you have. And I'm like, what's that? Because <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, what is that? She goes, I want your relationship how you, you talk to God and you have that relationship with God. I want that kind of a relationship with God. Mm. And I, I said, well, that comes through Jesus. And sitting there, I, I told her how to accept Christ as a savior and to have a personal relationship with God. And out of the corner of my eye was another person of ours. And it was her son. And he had been visiting and they and I knew him, and so he has tears coming down his eyes as all of this is coming around. And I was talking with her and leading her to Christ. And he came up to me after, and he hugged me. And he goes, "You don't know how many years we've been praying for her." Woo! <laughs> I love that. And so, did I think that we would be Dave and Becky in a book? That strangers read. Right, right. Never years. You never know. And then a friend of ours said, We like what your marriage is like. I have people, my neighbors, they're they're Hindi and they're Buddhist, and they have many gods, but they said, We like your relationship with your God. That's a very interesting story because all their gods have different stories. And some of them have arranged marriages. I'm like never did I think our marriage would be a blessing to somebody. Mm. Mm. Wow. Or that this story about my if-onlys uh -huh. 
would minister to anybody. Right. And just the way that you're able to illustrate the faithfulness of God to people who don't know him, and then they end up wanting him. I know. Wow. Okay. So we are out of time. So I want to do one last thing before we wrap up. In closing, do you have maybe a tip or two or a tool that would just help our listeners zero in on, you know, how much God really is continually working all things together for good, even when we can't see it? As I was going through and living out this story, people would tell me Romans 8.28, and in the midst of my pain, I did not want to hear it. Yep. Yep. But deep down in my heart, I knew that it was right. It's not easy living out the story. I always call it a holy hindsight. I'm 20 years past the story. Yeah. So I have a holy hindsight that my life map that I was doing when I was 34, I can connect the dots now that I'm 54. Mm-hmm. So keep living and don't give up mm. because your, your story isn't over yet. And one day God's going to show you how everything's going to connect and you're going to have those Romans 8:28 moments. Yeah. And that's hard to see in the midst of your pain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I love this. Okay, so if we have some people listening today and they want to connect with you either on social media or online, what's the best place for them to find you? BeckyGrahamAuthor.com. Perfect. BeckyGrahamAuthor.com. And, uh, yep. and are you on Facebook or any social media or is are all the links right there on your website? All the links are on my website. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just, this was so, so good. And your story is such an inspiration. I thank you so much for just taking the time to have this conversation, to encourage others and uh, let them see how faithful God is. Oh, thank you for having me. Never in a million years would I thought that I would be on a podcast, but I always want to share the goodness and God's faithfulness. So thank you very much for having me. You bet my friend. Well, thanks for joining us today for the All Things Podcast brought to you by Redemption Press and the Romans 828 Bookstore. So, hey, I'd like to ask you a favor. If you would, consider sharing this episode with your friends on social media. And if you haven't yet left a review of the podcast on Apple, I would love it if you would take a minute to do that as it would help other people find the show and also let them know that it's a show worth listening to. So thanks so much for joining us today and I will see you next week. Bye for now.